you know, the whole concept of uh, trying to live this life alone is, uh, is a lie. Because that's not what we were called to do. Whether it's being a father, whether it's being parents, whether it's being a family. One person asked me once about my candidating here at the church. And I said, you know, what I really get excited about is not programs and things such as that. I get excited about a community of people that just want to follow so hard after God that he begins to move in their lives in various places like we're seeing. And he just touches people's lives. Because we're called to get around people and do it not alone but together. So I'm really proud as I stand here as a pastor of the fact that I just see so many who are coming around one another and doing this together. And I encourage you, you know, the place of um, where you're most vulnerable is when you get out there all by yourself or you try and do it alone. If you're there, I just call you. To get close to someone and take the risk and open your heart and your life to them. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture in chapter 9 in Matthew. And we've been looking at Matthew. And chapter 9 begins in verse 1 with the third of three stories. We've had these story after story after story. Then there's a call to follow in Matthew. And there's stories usually about healing. About the power of God through Jesus to bring about a life that's changed internally, but yet also on many occasions physically. And so now we've gone through three stories of call to healing. Then we went through the fact that Jesus is the controller over nature as he stills the storms. He's a conqueror over demons as he comes in and he, he vanquishes the power of evil. And, and now we come to this third story where Jesus is the forgiver of sins. But what's so cool about this story is that this guy who received forgiveness received it at the hands of people who carried him to Jesus. And a testimony acknowledging what we heard from George, that it, you don't do this alone. People come around you. We're, we're created to come around people to help them know that they are significant and valuable and, and very much created with great worth because of God. And that, that worth is because of his love, which he expressed fully through Jesus as he sent and he, he actually died on a cross saying, this is how valuable you are to me. So verse one, Jesus steps into a boat, crossed over, came to his own town. He had left Capernaum a few days before on the west side of the lake to go over to the east side. Capernaum was his, his residence and headquarters, so to speak, for his ministry in Galilee. And it says in chapter 8 of verse 18 that so many people were coming to Jesus that when he stepped out and saw the crowd begin to push against him once again, he basically says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So now he's over on the other side. He's hoping to get some R&R. He steps off the boat and he goes into this gathering area. And two guys living up among the cave tombs come running towards him filled with demonic spirits. He casts them out. They ask for permission to go into a herd of pigs. Jesus, for some reason, allows it. This is all in last week's message. You can get it on iTunes. And then he puts a major dent in that area's economy as he allowed those pigs 
And those, those demons that go into a herd of pigs. And they all go down the side of a, a cliff and die. And healing for that area costs too much. God in your life costs too much in a sense. And they prefer pigs to people and swine to a savior. So they asked Jesus to leave. And that's where you get this verse. So Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, came to his own town. And, and the, the reason we say own town, we know that he grew up in Nazareth, which was really still west of there by a number of miles. And it was just a small little kind of rural village that he grew up in. But he moved to Capernaum when he began his ministry, and that became his hometown, so to speak. That's what Matthew refers to, his hometown at this point, in the sense of where his ministry was. And really, Capernaum was like the county seat of that rural Galilean area. It was known for fishing, it was a trade route, had a military center, and it was the place, if you're going to begin a ministry, that's the place to be. So as you read in verse 2, you find this interesting story of some men who show what I call crazy love. It says in verse 2, Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart now, son, your sins are forgiven. Mark is interesting in his gospel because he says something that, that Matthew doesn't tell us. Again, Matthew is, is not into all kinds of little details. Mark and Luke give more details. So Mark basically says some men came bringing a, to him a paralytic carried by four of them. So the idea, so often we think of four guys were hauling this guy to Jesus. Really, it could have been 12 or more guys. It could have been a group of fraternity kind of guys who grew up together in that town, and they all were together, but four of them were actually carrying him. So a group of them, we don't know how many, but we know four carried this guy. And you get this picture of these guys who are, who are friends back in, the, in their own hometown. And they're hearing stories of this miraculous power of this rabbi who has been in Capernaum going around healing people. And then they begin to think, just maybe, one of them has an idea, just maybe this Jesus would heal their friend. Their friend who's paralyzed. Could have been a quadriplegic person. You see, their buddy was paralyzed one night when after a night of, of wild parting, wine, women, and song. He crashed his SUV into a tree, and killing his girlfriend and two others in the back seat, ended up himself alive, but yet paralyzed. That's in First Kevin 2, 3, and 4. Um, that could have actually happened. Something like that could have happened. Because according to uh, most of the commentators, they talk about the fact that this paralysis probably was connected to his sin. There is times where our consequences due to sin create some kind of debilitating factors and in this case it created according to the commentators the sin as it says in Tyndale commentary it's clear that his sins had to be forgiven because before he could be healed physically for his disease was the result of his sin so I in my mind think of that kind of story could you imagine a guy who's who's out he's having a great time he crashes his SUV he ends up himself getting paralyzed and everybody else dies around him and he's filled with shame and guilt as a result of what he's done and he himself is stuck in this paralysized this, this paralysis of body but the real paralysis is in his soul because he's so filled with guilt and so filled with shame that if he could, he would die. And yet those around him love him and, and through time themselves have forgiven him and, and, and the community, even though it was unfortunate and maybe it was done in his youth, and again, I'm kind of 
adding to the story to give it some color. They are around him and they love him so much they want good for him. They, they want him not to live in this guilt and this shame the rest of his life. And they kind of think if they could get him to this rabbi, maybe they could do one thing for him. And that's to help him not be paralyzed. Maybe, maybe this rabbi would be loving and good enough that he would look at him and he would just heal him. And so some men brought this paralytic lying on a mat. And it was really a poor man's mat. The word is this idea. It's just a small mat that probably was his bed. Mark and Luke are the only ones that tell us where he was brought. He was actually brought to a home. And when we think about and look at the story more fully in the context of even these two other writers, they reveal just how crazy their love was for this guy. You see, Jesus is teaching at this house, and there's a crowd all around the home. Again, Mark chapter 2, verse 2 says, So many gathered there, that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Reminds me when I was preaching one time in Ethiopia. I'm in this church, and there was probably about 400 or so seated, as tightly packed as you could be. And I couldn't see because I was singing. You sing for about an hour. And so we sang and we sang. And when I got up to speak, I looked out and there's like two windows or so. And in the back door and through it, you could see just a groups of people outside trying to hear what was being said inside. It was packed. And these guys heard that Jesus was there. And by the time they got there, they had a back seat and could get in. And so Mark and Luke reveal the determination of these guys because they share a little bit of the color to this story. They believed enough in this Jesus rabbi who was doing this healing. They believed enough in this God who was working through Jesus, through the Spirit of God, that they came up with this crazy idea. One of them, can you can see them standing around going, man, I can't believe it. I told you to get them earlier. You guys would have just got them here on time. And they're, they're standing around thinking. And then one of them goes, I, I got an idea. The house on the outside there, there's a stairs up there that goes to the roof. No one's up on the roof. Well, we can't hear anything on the roof. What a great idea. He goes, no, here's my idea. We'll take and we'll peel away the tiles and we'll find out exactly where Jesus is. And, and, and we'll just lower them right down in front of me. There's no way Jesus can miss them. I think the guy who's feeling all this guilt and shame is going, yeah, you're right. You're going to bring me before the holy man and you're going to do all this stuff. And, and now he's going to look at me. He's going to even know my heart. and He's going to see my sin and my shame and my guilt. And now I'm going to actually do this. Are you crazy? But he doesn't have a choice because he's paralyzed. And so these guys take him, bring him up there. And you can see Jesus teaching and little specks of dust are coming down. And then you see a little beam of light kind of heading through. And people are kind of like, what's going on up there? And they start pulling it back further and further. And, and it disrupts the whole thing until they get it out enough that they can actually lower this guy down. Now, I just think about incredible love, crazy kind of love. And it just, as I thought about that, these guys... Nothing would stop them from bringing their friend to Jesus. Not a thing. They would do something so silly. And it challenged me. Is my faith about me and what I can get by coming to services or to studies or 
which are all good things? Is it about me and the next thing I can learn? Is it about me and how comfortable I can get as I seek to walk in righteousness? Or is righteousness truly doing what is right? The kind of life that is so crazy in love with people who are hurting and who are in need, who themselves are weighed down, not by a paralysis physically or in some other way, but those things are obviously causing hindrance in their life, but the greatest thing is their need in their heart to know that this God loves them. And it just got me thinking again, what do I do in my life that's crazy? And you know what the next question is, right? My wife thinks I do everything. No, um... What do you do? What does it look like for you to have someone in your life you care about? What, is that, what does that translate to? What does it translate to um, with the places you work or as you stand on the sidelines with people as you shout for your child, hoping someday you'll be in the World Cup? Um, that's kind of a joke, like that's going to happen. Anyway, um, what does it look like? Is our faith in a God whose crazy love caused him to sacrifice and give and serve, so filling us that with that same crazy love, we look at our our financial capability, we look at our gifts and talents, we look at our time, and we say, God, how can I use that in a way to bring about change in someone's life for good? And then specifically, we've been talking about illness. What does that mean? What does it mean for you when someone who you know is ill? What does it mean for you to come and to bring the faith of Jesus into that situation? Have you thought, what is that? What is the what is it that these guys had in faith that brought them to this guy? They didn't even hardly know. And yet we know him so well. Well, Mark and Luke tell us where they brought this paralytic friend, but Matthew doesn't. Again, Matthew is not really concerned about some of the eyewitness details of the account, nor is he concerned about the chronological order of the stories, because you'll find that they're in different places. Mark says this series happened a few days after one other event that you kind of go, how could it happen? Well, again, it's not chronological in Matthew. But Matthew has one point. He wants us to see that Jesus has the authority to save, heal, and even forgive anything in the hearts and lives of his people, of mankind. So as you read verse, at the end of verse 2, it talks a little bit here about not just the crazy love, but what I call is the incredible forgiveness of Jesus. Jesus said to the paralytic, take heart, son, which is very interesting. Your sins are forgiven, he says. Which I'm thinking the guys, if something happened in his life that was a result of this paralysis and the first thing Jesus said, I mean, just think about that. 
He doesn't go right away and say, well, no, you know, how did this happen? What's going on? He sees this guy, he comes before him, he sees paralyzed. And the thing he says to him that they all record, it appears that he says to him and he looks into his heart. He knows what's going on in his heart. He sees it. Maybe the guy can't even look him in the eyes. And he says to him, you know, the shame and the guilt and all the stuff that you've been carrying. Guess what? This God that I represent, this God who is in me, this God who I am in flesh representing before you so that you can see him, loves you. And just like your friends want this to be removed. And so much so, it's not about what you can do. It's not about how religious and how right and all the good things you can do. It's not about anything in you. It's not about anything that you can bring to me. It's about what I bring to you and what I bring to you is my love, my grace, my mercy, my faithfulness, my kindness, my goodness. And I will just shower it on you if you will just receive it and trust it. Your sins, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. And the response is that this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Blaspheming. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That you would look at Jesus and you would, you would, you would look at him and go, boy, that guy just blasphemed by saying these simple words, your sins are forgiven. In the loosest sense, when we think of blasphemy, we think of taking the Lord's name in vain and using it in a way kind of... Um, in, in profane ways, that's, you know, we call profanity and we, we, we throw it around as an exclamation at the end of a sentence or before something or when we're upset. But the real stricter sense of, of this idea of blasphemy was not necessarily the way you used that language in swearing profanity. It was more in the way that you, you did things in the name of God. Strictly, it was in this way, the most dangerous thing. And so when they said you're blaspheming, they were, this is a huge charge, punishable by death. Because what God didn't want people to do was to use his name to manipulate other people to do things. He didn't want the, the kind of damage that happens when a Jim Jones stands up and, and he says, everybody drink the Kool-Aid, God said so. That's the extreme of that. But what he's looking at, at Jesus is these guys, they say, you're blaspheming. What you're doing is you're standing and representing God the Father and doing something that you can't do because you want it for your means because you're trying to draw a crowd and you're trying to get people to follow you. That's what they were actually claiming. And Jesus was saying, not at all. Now think about it for a second. It's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing for me as a pastor to do. It'd be very easy to go, you know, this is what God has said, and this is what God's revealed to me, and this is what we want to do it because I want, you know, you know, we want to raise $40 million to build a huge complex because God said so. Now I'm not saying God may say that. But if the motivation of the heart is to do something because I need it for my esteem and for my ability and my ambition so that I can look good, so that can, people can look at me and I'll feel good about myself and it's not about God, that's blasphemy. But you see what's really interesting here is it's very, it's very easy to, to kind of, to, to call that something and, and to go, was this really God or not? They're looking at it going, this isn't God, this Jesus, by our evaluation, the way we look at it, by the way we look at his heart, we see a heart that's not pure, we see a heart that really they're projecting their own heart into him and saying blasphemy because they did that. And parents, you can do it. In subtle ways. 
You can look at your kids and you can tell them in the backseat of the car as you're going to someone else's place. Now, I want you to behave because Jesus frowns on it when you disobey. And, and the reason you're saying in pulling the God card or the Jesus card in situations is you want them to behave well because the behavior that you want is really for you. Not, not teaching that, you know, this behavior is good and there's a value in it in and of itself. And yes, this would really be something that would reflect. We don't want it to reflect on us. In a bit, but, but to be honest about what your motivations are, if you can. There's lots of ways people take the name of God and manipulate other people. And that's what they're charging him with. And all three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, record this charge of blasphemy. And the question is basically this. How, Jesus, can you claim the right to forgive this man of his sin? That's a God thing and something man can't do. Even a miracle-working, rabbi, spirit-looking guy like you, Jesus. You don't have that right. Literally, Jesus is standing in the place of God the Father and doing what only the God the Father can do because that's all Jesus does because he is fully God and fully man. He walks with him perfectly without sin. He looks at this man. He sees his heart. He knows his heart. And he relays from God the Father the very thing that's on the heart of God the Father and says, Son, I want you to be of good cheer. I want you to take heart. I want you to know something right now. Do not plagued any longer by your sin because if your heart is repentant and you have humbled yourself and you understand your state and you call out to me and all you have to do is trust that what's in my heart is greater than what's been done by you and in your heart you are at that moment forgiven and that goes for us as well Because it's not about your work, it's about the work that God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's all about what's been done in his heart. And so he says that to him. You're completely forgiven. But Jesus goes on further to prove his point, which I think is interesting in verse 4. He goes, knowing their thoughts, which is a kind of a God thing. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Mark brings this out a little more forcefully. He says, immediately... Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. The idea is that even before they could even murmur with one another, some manuscripts actually say seeing their thoughts with the eye of his heart. He saw into their inner being from which springs the will and the action of what they are wanting to do. And he sees it. And then he calls them out on this question. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? And I just, when I was writing this, went, ouch, that'll leave a mark. Especially if you're calling this out in front of a group of people who are standing there and they're religious and self-righteous and they're feeling good about themselves. And the whole reason they feel self-righteous and good about themselves is not because God has declared them because it's something that's in God. But it's because they have put themselves in a position where they feel better than others around them. They're in the one-up position before these people. So they stand before these people in the one-up position. But the guy who they're charging with blasphemy looks at them and says, you know what, you guys, you're really not one-up. You're one-down. There's evil thoughts in your heart. And he makes them look totally embarrassed. Now you think, you know why they're angry? Because people don't like being dissed. They don't like being humiliated. So Jesus stands up there and basically, in a sense, calls out what's in their heart. They feel dissed because it's in their heart and they're angry. So verse 5 goes on and says, Okay, you guys, 
I, I see what's going on in your heart. So let's let's do this. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven, right? Difficulty with that is if you say it, you don't know it's really true. In their mind, that's not the easy one. You know, in their mind, it's the healing ones. You know, you say that and you, you, there's, you have to prove that. But Jesus is basically saying, you think healing the body is the tough one? That's not the hard one for God. That's just a little bit of power in, in rearranging some circuits and, and getting some things to work. It's just a little physical thing. You know what the really, really hard thing is for God? The really, really tough thing for God? The thing that Jesus had the hardest time doing with people is He had to have people whose hearts would be humble and responsive and their hearts would be willing to have faith to trust Him and, and to believe that when God says you're forgiven, you're truly forgiven. And then to walk in that forgiveness. And then to begin to listen to His Spirit and walk in that. The hard thing for God was not some physical twitch that He could get a body moving again he was to get a heart changed it's the hard thing he has to do for me every week in preparation for a message it's not god help give me some really good stories and a good thing that i can share but it's god would you help prepare my heart so it's in a place where it's open and flexible and soft and surrendered so that god you could take your word and, and give something to people who need to hear from you the hard thing for us, folks, is when we get up in the morning on a Monday morning, is, 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 is this. It, it's not that we can perform well at the work that day and all those other things. It's really in this sense, God, can my heart be soft and, and flexible and supple in such a way that when I walk through this day, I will see the needs of people and when necessary, I'll do crazy loving kind of things that will help change their heart because my heart has been crazy loved by you. And so Jesus is going, you know what, you guys, you don't get it. To us, he's saying, you, we don't get it. Because the physical thing is easy. So he says to him, you know, if you really want to see um, what's easier, then I'll just show you. Here's a sign. I'll prove to you that I am who you fear that I am by doing what only God can do and you believe to be so hard. And he looks at the guy and he says, buddy, get up, grab your mat. Go ahead and walk. Go home. Verse 6 and 7. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And verse 7 is, what an understatement. Talk about just condensing a story. And the man got up and went home. Okay, thank you. I, you know, I, I got to believe the guy went, whoa, this is cool. He's jumping around and Jesus is kind of laughing and having fun. These guys are getting angrier. The guy takes his mat. He walks at the door. The, they're high-fiving one another. They're so excited as a bunch of buddies. They're back. The team is back. And Jesus says, you know what, in order to validate my credentials, and he uses the word here authority, which means delegated power. You know when a cop pulls you over, they have delegated power. And, and you're looking at him and, and, he, and you're going, man, I... Uh, you submit, even if your heart isn't, because you know they have delegated power, which means the power of all you people together stand behind them. But once in a while, some people who don't even respect the cop, they give them guns. Right? Because in that gun is power. That sometimes is needed to be used to show the credentials to get people to do what they want to do. So that when he points it at you, you go, okay. Now, the delegated power doesn't work. Uh, this gun thing works for me. And so, 
what you find here is Jesus goes, you know what? You guys don't, you don't believe in delegated power because your hearts are so evil. So let me take out the gun. Heals the guy. And he walks away. And I think what's so amazing about this story is that Luke says, this is, I just want to read to you what Luke has to say at one point. He says, if you won't believe the word, here's what, well, let me go, look at verse 8. You need to look at verse 8 and I'll get this for you. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God. And Matthew is the only one who says this, who had, who had given such authority to men. They were amazed. They were awestruck. They saw God was so good. Why? Because they praised the fact that he had given this authority men to Jesus. But what Matthew is making this point is to men, to his church, to us. Luke, before this story, writes this. This is what he writes before the story. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Isn't that interesting? Jesus knew the gun was loaded. He knew that there were times when he could walk and, and God would come upon him and he would sense and know the power was available at that moment to do what the God the Father wanted him to do. And as I thought about this, and I thought about this for years as I've been just processing this. Because Jesus at times would walk by, he walked by two blind men who started yelling and calling. And finally, because of their calling, it was their faith that finally stopped him. So Jesus didn't just heal everybody. But there were times when he knew the power of God was present. And I just have to say, is it possible if the authority of this has been given to men? Again, this is a challenge where I make you kind of all of us kind of go, you know, this is where I maybe stand and I might just stretch you a little bit. Are there times that we miss the power and presence of God because we don't have it in our theology or because we don't have the faith to exercise it or because we've never asked God for it? And the one thing I find really interesting here is that Jesus was impressed with this. He was impressed, it says, that some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw whose faith? Whose faith? Their faith. Whose faith? Yeah, we're not going to go till you say it. Whose faith? Right. In a moment... I just want us to listen to this song again and look into the eyes of God. I'm going to ask the team to come forward. I'm going to ask you to be thinking as you kind of look into his eyes. God, um, in some cases, increase my faith. And in some cases, you need to say, God, I want to look into your eyes and receive what you want from me, your forgiveness. If you've never asked God to forgive you and to come into your heart, you've never trusted him. Take this time and just listen and use this as a time of prayer before the Lord.